Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Cool okay, we're talking cover. about the Neil Stephenson's The Diamond Age. We're talking, this is our second day talking about it. And I hope you had a chance to read the Wikipedia article on this. This is, a, this is one Wikipedia article that's actually quite good. It has a lot of stuff in it that's well, that's, that's useful to focus on some of the themes that are in it. Because it's a complicated article. What's that? It's insane. Yeah, this is a Wikipedia article. On it. Some of the Wikipedia articles are really quite good, and they hope for uh, having discussions very similar to how we have discussions here in the class. There's a lot of people that contribute to these Wikipedia articles, and sometimes it acts, it, it ends up acting like a discussion. And uh, anyway. So, the Diamond Age. We've covered a lot of the essence of it. What did you find in it that was interesting that we'd like to read, especially a passage that you'd like to read in it? And let's take the passages and then try to unravel some of the major themes that we get in it. Go ahead. All right. Um, I got um, passage just about... Um, you have to give us a page. What? You have oh, to give us sorry. a page. Sorry. Uh, 283. What was it? 283? 283. 283. Um, the a constable is uh, talking to Nell about her primer. All right. And where are you going to start and where are you going to end? Um, I am going to start with Nell, the constable, continue. Okay, I? good. Actually, that's a good passage. I had noted that passage as well. Go ahead. All right. Nell, the constable, continued indicating through his tone of voice that the lesson was concluding. The difference between ignorant and educated people is that the latter know more facts, but that has nothing to do with whether they are stupid or intelligent. The difference between stupid and intelligent people, and this is true whether or not they are well educated, is that intelligent people can handle, um, uh, wow. Sub Subtlety. Subtlety, thank you. They are not baffled by ambiguous or even contradictory situations. In fact, they expect them and are apt to become suspicious when things seem straightforward. In your primer, you have a resource that will make you highly educated, but it will never make you intelligent. That comes from life. Your life up to this point has given you all of the experience you need to be intelligent, but you have to think about those experiences. If you don't think about them, it will be um, psychologically unwell. If you do think about them, you will become not merely educated, but intelligent. And then, a few years down the road, you will probably give me cause to wish I were several decades younger. <laughs> What's that about? That's actually a very profound um, passage relating to the themes of the, of the book. What is it about? Go ahead. Brian, you, you picked it. Why don't you start by talking about it? All right. Um, I mean, I was kind of just struck by... How I mean, it made me re um, evaluate how kind of um, I thought about um, intelligence because kind of the way that you know I've been taught is you know if you can get a A in every class by regurgitation you're intelligent and to those who kind of you know flunk are not intelligent and and it just kind of like like um, spun it on um, its head in terms of like. 
intelligent is the way that you kind of uh, uh, digest the world and react as opposed to just pure regurgitation. I don't know. Um, there were other things I felt like that. I'm just having a hard time kind of explaining. No, that's good. Actually, this is a, uh, an important theme that comes out in more than one way, not just in this particular passage. But what, in other ways, this comes out in the novel. How does it come out in the novel? In other ways, it comes out in the novel. The idea that education has two components to it. One where you get facts, which is something we were talking about before class, and the other is where you argue or you experience life and you learn about those facts and integrate them into your personality. How does that come across in the novel in other ways? It's a major theme in the novel. Well, how many people have primers? Is it just Nell who has a primer? Ultimately three, right? Well, it depends on what you're considering the primers, because there was also those like thousands of uh, Chinese girls. Mm -hmm. So there's three main primers and then thousands of kind of minor primers, I guess. Exactly. So let's go through them. Nell has one. Who else has them? Uh, Hackworth's daughter, Fiona. Fiona, Hackworth's daughter, has one. Um, Elizabeth. Yeah. Uh, Hinkle. Who? Hinkle McGraw. Hinkle McGraw, yeah. I'm Elizabeth. Elizabeth has one. And the Chinese girls. Right. They have their version. What's the reaction to the different people? I mean, not everybody reacts in the same way. Where does the, where does the primer come from? What? Remember, there are cultures from which it comes, these educational systems come from. How do you deal with cultures in the primer? What culture does the primer come from? The, uh, like, neo-Victorian. Yeah, the Victorian. And what was that supposed to do? What was the primer supposed to do? Um, it educates on a number of levels. So with, um, just for instance, like, now has had no experience with the Victorians prior to getting the primer. And then um, after she uses it for a while, she develops, like, their patterns of speech. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of an all-around educational tool because you can use it for reference and uh, for entertainment, but it teaches you subtle things, uh, how to speak properly, um, and it teaches her uh, also uh, little things through the characters, how to be clever or how to uh, do other things like that. But, um, Go ahead. Just yeah. Something I, um, although it does a teacher of speech in Victorian manners, I saw that as just kind of a, um, a a side effect of the primer itself, because the primer like was meant for um, Elizabeth, which was more Victorian, but um, I saw it as like a way to break the mold, because, I mean, Finkel McGraw was trying to stop his um, granddaughter, his last granddaughter, from becoming just like, like a, an ordinary person. So the primer kind of changes the way we a thing for more a regurgitation that they teach in school uh, to kind of problem solving. And actually, um, as I was reading the primer, it reminded me a lot of that really odd game in um, Ender's Game, mm-hmm. where um, every time there is like some like monster in the road, you have to try to defeat it, and then something else happened. Mm-hmm. Just saw a lot of connections between those. Yeah, the primer actually involves a lot of challenges and how to work with those challenges in life. And it's quite reactive in the sense that things happen in life and education all along the way. 
But what are the responses to the other? We have Nell. She reacts in one way. How does she end up in the book? How was her education? Um, amazing. One of a kind. She um, becomes... A leader of a file. A leader of a file. Yeah. Exactly. A leader of a file. Which is sort of an interesting aspect we want to come back to. What is the idea of the file that it's being portrayed in the in the book? But what are some of the other people? What are... What, 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 how did Fiona react to it? I mean, um, just so I can point out, um, Stevenson mentioned that how they reacted to the primer depended on how much time they spent with the primer. So Nell, who her entire life was engrossed in the primer, was kind of shaped the most out of it. Fiona was um, used the primer a lot, was shaped by it, but her whole life wasn't engrossed in it. And then Elizabeth was hardly shaped by the book at all and kind of went off and did what most teenagers do. So She went off. She just didn't connect to it. What about the Chinese girls? What about some other people? What about the Chinese girls? What happened to them? With their version of the primer. What did they do? How did they come across? It's not necessarily a fair question because it was a different type of primer. It didn't have that um, that a connection between the real, well, between the reactors, which shaped the characters themselves. So it was more a hollow version of it. Did the Chinese version of the primer have humans inside it, embedded in it? Well, let's go with Nels. Did Nels have a was it, was it, what what kind of personalities were in the primer? Um, well, for Nels, like, she had a specific person behind the primer for her. Uh, like, the, it was a matter of, like, consistency in her life, where there had been really none before. So that was, I think, significant to her character in particular, because, like, she had the same voice every time the primer read to her. And so did Fiona. Yeah. Fiona had her father. So. Mm-hmm. And then, so that was like one of the main differences was um, like that sort of connection that the uh, like the three main primers had um, was not as accessible, I think, in the mass-produced version that had the like. Uh, consistent, like the one consistent voice throughout. There's a computer program. Yeah, it's a computer program. Alright, now we're getting to it. So there are two types of personalities involved in the primer. One are one is a computer program version, and how do we call it that? What are they talking about? How do they refer to that? There's a test associated with that as well. Remember how Nell tries to test oh. her primer to find out if it's one of those computer programs? What kind of a... Turing well, test? Pardon me? Turing test. The Turing test. Yeah, the Turing test. Are they Turing machines? Are they machines that are trying to imitate the human personality? Or are they the real thing? Okay. She seems sort of a... Go ahead. Well, I was struck by the fact that she did that through poetry. Yeah, that she no, did I mean, it with poetry. That's one of the things that... It's one of the Turing... That's one of the things that you can do. I mean, because poetry cannot be understood by artificial well, I mean the Turing test basically says that you know, poetry can't be understood by artificial intelligence 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, and they can understand the words. They can understand, you know, okay, that's a simile. Okay, that's a metaphor. But they can't understand the meaning behind it. Mm-hmm. The subtlety behind it in the poetry. It's interesting. Well, this actually says something very profound about artificial intelligence, doesn't it? Is what that is saying that they're not intelligent but simply well-educated? I mean, if you look at this passage, mm-hmm. it says the difference between stupid and intelligent people. Um, this is true whether or not they're well-educated. Is that intelligent people can have Wait a second. Uh, I guarantee is not being, your mumbling is not being picked up. Sorry. The difference between stupid... You're saying an important point, too. That's why I want to make sure that it is picked up. Go ahead. Okay. The difference between stupid and intelligent people, and this is true whether or not they are well-educated... Slow down, slow down. ...is that intelligent people can handle subtlety. Um, they are not baffled by ambiguous or even contradictory situations. And AIs can't pick up on subtlety. Therefore, they can't be intelligent. They can be well-educated, and they, I mean, they often are in an attempt to mirror intelligence, but they can't actually attain intelligence. This, this point has been heavily debated with respect to this novel by artificial intelligence people, people who focus and try to develop artificial intelligence. I mean, it's a huge field. And some of them are saying, just give us a chance, give us a time, but we haven't yet gotten there. But one of the ideas is, can artificial intelligence put it all together? This is a theme that's come out in media science fiction as well with Star Trek. The character data in the next generation is a computer personality that is striving to be human. And what does he do? He struggles throughout the entire series trying to figure out subtleties in language, subtleties in humor, subtleties in all types of things that humans can sort of just know. And so, yeah. Ultimately fails, though. He ultimately dies. So... Like, oh, in the in the series, yeah. He when he gets older as a character, the actor gets older. They kill him off. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, like in terms of that, like yes, there's. But he had a brother. Right. Like, so there's progression, but at the same yeah. time, although he got closer and closer to being human, he never actually kind of crossed th- that barrier. There so, was always that tension. Right. So, it's like still that idea that like yes, like we might be able to get AIs to be so smart, but they might never understand poetry. Yeah, it's interesting. That's 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 the question. That is. And the problem the is, you're, you're, uh, when you have an AI, someone or probably many people have. Um, oh God, my brain. Um, have created the AI. Have um, coded mm-hmm. what the AI's reactions are. But there's only so many situations you can record. I mean, you can code for. I mean, you can code for as many things as you can think up. But you, I mean, you can't. Um, think of every possibility. So you know, at some point if you make an AI intelligent or knowledgeable enough, it'll become self sustaining. Like a big thing and that's the in question. The Ender series of books was a, uh, a computer program and sentient being known as Jane, which was just intelligence that ran across oh, Jane. across phylotic strings. And you know, even though she wasn't, I mean, she was witty and she was clever and sarcastic and all these different things that are, you know, standard human kind of emotions. You know, they can eventually surpass things that we can do as human beings. So while we might be able to read poetry, they might be able to, you know, do 
fast acting computations or hold multiple things in her. And she would have much rather prefer. She would have much preferred to have been able to read poetry. Well, I mean, each person in that in those novels serve their purpose, though. Yeah. So you can't really say just because they can't read poetry, they don't have value, or artificial well, intelligence shouldn't be continued. I mean, no, I'm not saying that was the point you're making. I'm not saying that at all, actually. Um, but. but at the same time, you, you can't just throw it away because there's things that a computer can do better than any human could ever do. No, I mean, it's certainly valid, but there are certain things that humans can do better than any computer that's ever been programmed thus far is capable of doing. Now, one of the things that we might want to add to the discussion is the question of free will. Meaning, if a computer intelligence, an, art, an, an, an AI, uh, is to react to the world, if the world has stimulus and that stimulus is, is supposed to create some reaction to it. If there is a pre-programmed response, then there is no such thing as free will. And then the idea of reacting to poetry becomes one of a pre-programmed response to poetry. On the other hand, the question of free will implies that there is a probability associated with an action not a certainty associated with an action. Let me give you an example of something that computer people deal with quite regularly, which is the generation of random numbers. There are two basic ways to generate random numbers. One is a pseudo-random algorithm, and it's a program that you run in your computer, and it generates numbers that look like random numbers, but in fact they're not really random numbers. It's a computer program that has some chaotic characteristics to it, but you can recreate the exact same data stream, putting in the appropriate seed and so on. On the other hand, there is an ability to create random numbers using a device that has quantum properties, meaning on the quantum level, it is it's actually it's debated, but it's apparently the 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 general the general idea is 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 pretty much accepted that on the quantum levels things really are probabilistic. And what that basically means is that a particle will manifest within a certain range. Actually it has a range that spreads through all of space, but its primary area where it's going to manifest is in a certain location. And that location they call a wave packet. Now that particle means that most times when you look for it and you observe it eventually, you find it within that wave packet. And that wave packet is a probabilistically defined geographical area. So are you saying that there's no such thing as random? Well, no, let me finish. There is. But from time to time, because the probability associated with that particle does extend through all the space. From time to time, it appears considerably outside in the very ends of that distribution, which is outside of the primary area of the wave packet. Now, one of the ways they generate random numbers that are truly random is to measure when those particles, or often electrons, manifest elsewhere beyond, say, some set boundaries that contain almost all of the wave packet. Every once in a while, a particle will appear someplace else, over there, or in 
most of the time it appears within a narrow confined confined area. So that appearance of the particle is random. It's authentically, truly random. So there are apparently some physical properties within what makes us us in terms of the physical universe. The, we're all based upon quantum stuff. That is truly random. Now, what were you saying? Well, no, I was just saying something that no longer has any weight. So. What? That, that what? It's not important. Oh, it was important, actually. I think it was something I said, about... I said, so are you saying that there's no such thing as random? Well, oh yeah, that's right. So there is such a thing as random. There is such a thing as random on a real basis. Now, what if, and this is a hot issue in, in intelligence debates, what if thinking is based on quantum properties? What if thinking is based on ideas that are fundamentally based uh, on, on things that occur at the quantum level? When you get an idea in your brain, is it because you're going through a pseudo-random algorithm and you're pre-programmed? Or is there something truly random going on in the, in the brain? Now, some people, for example, Stuart Hameroff out of the University of Arizona, uh, a neurologist, but he also studies consciousness. He believes that there are actually that he's actually located the spots in the cells where quantum events of the type that we just talked about. That's called tunneling, where a uh, particle actually manifests like tunnels through a barrier and actually appears somewhere else outside of his normal wave packet. He actually suggests that there's these little things called nanotubules little small little tubes inside the cell structure where these quantum events occur. And these are authentically random quantum events, really random quantum events. And in the context of true randomness, then the idea of free will becomes more possible. In the context of pseudo-randomness, then you really question whether free will exists. And this is one of the debates we have with artificial intelligence. Meaning, is artificial intelligence actually extending beyond the realm of pseudo-randomness? Is it extending to the realm of real randomness? Do you really have an ability to reconfigure what you do? To rethink what you do? In Marge Piercy's Sheen It, you did. In Marge Piercy's? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was exactly right. You did. In... Uh, in in Mark Pacey's, Percy's book, He, She, and It. He had that ability. So anyway, but we have different people reacting different ways to these primers and different primers. I'd like to also get back to the, to the uh, Chinese girls who use their version of the primer. How did they respond to it? First of all, we have Nell, who responded to become a leader. She grew up to be a leader. Then we had Fiona and we had Elizabeth responding different ways than the Chinese girls. So let's take them apart one at a time. Go ahead. I mean, I know Fiona becomes an artist. She becomes an artist. And and what, I mean, and Elizabeth just becomes another, like, lackey? Is that kind of the... And I wasn't sure what really she became other than a normal person. Well, she didn't become what 
what the primer was designed to create right. in her. So, right. Now, what if she had followed the footsteps of Nell? Would the primer have fulfilled its... If she became like Nell became, which, would the primer have fulfilled its, its, its purpose? I'm not sure she would have become exactly like Nell because there is inherently different people. Like, um, I mean, Fiona spent almost as much time as Nell did with the primer. And just because of her more artsy side, she became an artist, whereas Nell, who had apparently inherent leadership abilities, became a leader. So mm -hmm. I think it's a design to turn you into the best type of person you can be, as opposed to, let's say, like turning you into a narrow like leader. But Okay, now that's good. Now let's compare that to the Chinese girls. <laughs> what culture did Nell, Elizabeth, Fiona come out of, and what culture did the Chinese girls come out of? And what does that say about the books, the primers? Well, obviously, the three girls came from the more neo-Victorian um, kind of area. I mean, obviously, Nell was, I can't remember what word for it. No, she was without a file to begin with. She was without a file. Um, one of the lowest yeah, tasks you can be. working class. Yeah. And then... The Chinese girls obviously grew up in a more Confucian, um, I don't want to use the word dynastic, but Confucian, um, just government areas. Middle mm -hmm. Kingdom. King, oh, Middle Kingdom. Yeah. So obviously that would have a different influence on the way that they perceived the book mm -hmm. um, in comparison to the way that the Neo-Victorians would view the book as well. But also the Chinese girls' books were didn't have a person behind them, right? It was, it was AI. Yeah, they were, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, that, I mean, the AI is capable of, I guess, of responding somewhat differently to different stimuli, but they can't respond nearly as dynamically um, as actual people, like the people behind um, Nell and Fiona and Elizabeth's primary. Mm. That's very interesting. What is Stephenson, what is Stephenson actually saying about the role of education within a culture. What is he saying about the relationship between education and culture? Here you have the Chinese girls with a Confucian background ending up working with the thing quite differently, the primer quite differently than Nell. What is Stephenson saying? Remember, he's... he's He's the one in charge. He wrote the book. What is he saying about education and culture? I think what he's trying to say is that education is um, a means of preserving culture. It's a way to um, you know, engage new people into um, your culture. You can teach them the way that you learn and people learn before you, and you can preserve that. And uh, you can also move forward with that. But you're keeping people sort of in that way of thinking. So education is very different from culture to culture. Um, and so it's kind of suited to each culture as they see fit. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Mm. I mean, well, it's quiet. The Confucian culture, I mean, it's very... Literary, it's very academic. But it was all about the 
the pursuit of the past and understanding of the past as opposed to the pursuit of the future. And I think, like, that's kind of what we're running into. It's kind of like, it's not regurgitation, but it's more thought of ideas that have already existed. At least that was my idea. That's, that's a good point. Um, let's look at it from a different perspective. How does Stephenson portray the Chinese experience versus the Neo-Victorian experience with the primer? With the Chinese experience, who does it? Who, who interacts? It's the girls, right? In plural? A group. It's a group experience. With the Western orientation, the Western culture, what is it? What kind of experience is it? Individual. It's an individual experience. There's something of Americana coming into this, you see. What do you see that's sort of Americana? I mean, the importance of the individual, the importance of being different. You get a little bit of Clint Eastwood in this thing. <laughs> you get a little bit of Clint Eastwood. The idea of a single person coming to grips with his or her destiny or capabilities within the educational realm, using education to build themselves up, to become a person of stature, a person of leadership, a person of capability, a person individually defined. Does that concept of an individual make sense within Confucian culture? Not entirely. Go ahead. I mean, in ter- in terms of the masses, it doesn't. Um, I mean, in the um, like in Chinese culture, you still had like the nobles and the kings and stuff like that, and they were the only ones that had the power to exert um, individual thought. But as opposed to that, like the masses, it was a very groupthink mentality. So. One of the things that, that's a good point, one of the things that David Brooks wrote in the New York Times, he's the opinion columnist, actually he's the one we read last Tuesday, he wrote this in an opinion column long ago, relating to the Olympics that took place in China. He said what the world really is, is two basic ways of looking at things. You have an Asian way of looking at things, which is fundamentally communal. There's groups, and people can't identify as individuals isolated from the group. There is only the group, and individuals isolated from the group doesn't really make sense. You work for the group, as a member of the group, to protect the group, to develop the group. The Western concept is the person out there in the mountains looking up at the stars by herself or himself. The individual inventor, the one who proceeds individually. And what David Brooks was making, the point that he was making in that essay, was that that lone ranger mentality may be a myth. That in fact, America, to use this country as an example, has achieved greatness only when it acts collectively. The idea of the individual being the lone ranger, the one who acts independently, may not really be something that's real. That we may have an idea of individual achievement, 
But when we achieve something great as a society, it's always been in times when we come together and collectively do something as a, as a group that we could not do individually. And so we have this political divide in our country right now where on one side, perhaps, perhaps, perhaps more supported by the Republican way of thinking, that the individual is dominant and the individual should be out there competing in an economic Darwinian sense to struggle for whatever right individually defined. And then you have a more collective orientation, perhaps somewhat more identified with the Democratic Party, which is you have to help the individuals compete by supporting groups and that groups are more important in the context. And what David Brooks was arguing in that opinion column is that, in fact, the isolated individual, and he comes at it from a conservative Republican point of view, may in fact be a myth, that it may just not really exist. But it is part of our mentality. It is part of our belief system nonetheless. I agree with you with one caveat. Go ahead. I agree with the, I mean, I understand the part, uh, what you were saying about how we get further ahead when we have groups working together. I mean, we've just dis- we've discussed a lot about how various nations um, become democratic nations um, and how that infrastructure of groups, you know, societies, unions, um, helps. Um, so clearly, the groups are important. But I will I will not agree with you saying that the individual is myth. The individual is not a myth. The individual achieving greatness is possibly a myth because with an individual there's only so much that an individual can do if there's if there's no support from any other person or I mean there's no support from a group then the individual can have interesting different divergent thought but action is not always possible you know, there's a big debate in psychology on the collectivist or individualistic um, uh, cultures and a couple of different studies that they did on this showed how uh, how people would be willing to break from the group. Hmm. Um, and it showed across the whole that even if you came from a collectivist or an, individual, an individualistic society, both were relatively the same on not being willing to break away from the group. So in one study they had lines drawn on pieces of paper and all yeah. you had to do was basically say, which line is the same? And they have playing the tape in the background. Everyone's saying, oh, it's line A, but line A was clearly... Well, in this one, they had people in the same room, so it was an even closer experience with the so-on group. And there were a bunch of Confederates, basically meaning they were working with people taking the test. And they would obviously say the wrong answer. I mean, it was directly in front of you. You could perceive one was maybe eight inches and one was six. And if everyone in the group said, oh, the six-inch line matches the eight-inch line, the one person who was being tested would go with them. They wouldn't change their view, whether they were in one culture or another. So it shows on the basis level of you know, human mindset, we are all collectivists. We all want to be part of a group. And to break away from the group is shut. Can I uh, read a passage? Yeah, uh, yeah actually, if you have something, yeah, if you have a passage that's related to this, or yeah, well, yeah, um, it, I mean, um, it deals with kind of the um, what I saw as a blending between the uh, um, individual and the a collective. Um, perfect, perfect. It, Let's go to it. What it, page? Uh, 378. 378. Um, it 378. It deals with the 
weird, um, it was kind of a vignette, almost about this weird cult. Great, why don't you give us a little context of where the passage is, and where do you start, and where do you end? Alright, um, I was going to end with a you, question. Where do you or, start? Sorry, start, that's what I meant, the ritual we just witnessed. Okay, and, okay. And of context is, um, uh, Hackworth and Fiona are walking through the woods, and they see uh, two members of this reformed distributed republic, which is kind of this kind of cult phylum type of thing, or phyla, mm-hmm. and so um, Hackworth is trying to use this experience to uh, teach Fiona about the world. Great. So, that's the passage. The ritual we just witnessed. Ritual is a good descri- is a good description, Hackworth said. Earlier today, that man and that woman were both visited by messengers who gave them a place and a time, nothing else. In this case, the woman's job was to jump off that cliff at the given time. The man's job was to tie the end of the rope before she jumped. A very simple job. But if he had failed to do that, she'd be dead, Fiona said. Precisely. The names are pulled out of a hat. The participants have only a few hours' warning. Here the ritual is done with a cliff and a rope. But there happened to be a cliff in the or because there happened to be a cliff in the vicinity. In other RDR nodes, the mechanism might be different. For example, person A might go into the room, take a pistol out of a box, load it with live ammunition, put it back in the box, and then leave the room for ten minutes. During that time, person B is supposed to enter the room and replace the live ammunition with a dummy clip, having the same weight. Then person A comes back to the room, puts the gun to his head, and pulls the trigger. But person A has no way of knowing whether the person B has done his job. Exactly. What's the role of the third person? A proctor. An official of the RDR who sees to it that the two participants don't try to communicate. How frequently must they undergo this ritual? As frequently as their names come up at random, perhaps every... Perhaps once every couple of years, Hackworth said. It's a way of creating mutual dependency. These people know that they can trust each other. In a tribe such as the FDR, whose view of the universe contains no absolutes, this ritual creates an, an artificial absolute. And so, and that's where I was going to end. Go ahead. Now, why don't you tell us about this? What's the significance well, of this? It's a good passage. When, I mean, when we were talking about kind of the Lone Ranger mentality and the a collective mentality. I was struck by kind of, in my opinion, um, it's a balance, um, and I thought of this part of the book, in which you have person A and person B um, who have individual tasks and who are doing their own thing, but they rely on one one another and cannot do it without each other. So, I mean, it's different actions, so I didn't see it as collectivism, but it also is an individualism, so... That's a very good point. What does other people have to think about that? I would agree that it's it's the actions of the individual that are making the whole um, or the collective. But then you have to make a decision between which is the major influence between the individual who is actually carrying out the action or for the group that he's doing the action for. Mm -hmm. So which influences our day-to-day actions more, even in just a regular context when you wake up? Are you more concerned about how you feel that day or how people will see you and think that you feel? Um, and it's, you know, it's just one of those very common facts that we're, we grow up and we live in a society you know, full of other 
supposedly free-thinking individuals who, every single time they look at us, they'll, I don't want to use the word judge because it's a little co condemning, but who will evaluate you based on the way you present yourself. And so most personalities are the way people interact with other people are the way that they want to be the most accepted by the person they're talking to. So a lot of people view self-knowledge not through the way you view yourself, but the way that you view people viewing you. Hmm. You know, if you compare the two ideas, knowledge being seen from the perspective of how others view you, which is what you're saying, and what Brian was just focusing on with this passage, then it's a real difference because with one side of it, you look at how people, you look at other people as a, as a mirror to see how you are and you adjust your behavior based on how you see them. In the passage we have here, there's a tremendous amount of training involved, training for dependency. You're not necessarily looking to see yourself in other people. You're learning to fundamentally depend on those other people and that you do not see yourself as separate from those other people. If, if in this passage you don't completely believe yourself to be in sync with those other people, not reflected by the other people, so you can see your individual worth, but in sync with the other people, in one with them, then when you pull the gun, they'll be dead. You have to believe that they are, that you, in a sense, are one cog in a machine that's much larger, and that you all have to work together. And there's a sense of faith associated with that. So, and what Zach was talking about, there's a sense of seeing who you are by looking at the mirror of other people. But you're still wondering who you are as an individual. But what Brian's talking about is the loss of the individual, in a sense. Because you don't really see the individual anymore. You only see the group. That group dependency. Because absent the group, you're going to be dead. You'll pick up the gun, put it to your head, pull the trigger... And if the group malfunctions, the live ammunition will be in the gun, and you're dead. So you only function as your component in the group. Meaning, your part, person A, was to put the live ammunition in the gun and put the gun in the, in the room and then leave. That was your job. You were not even overseeing the other job, the job of person B, who came in and switched the ammunition. Complete blind faith in the group. And so person A was depending on person B being as much in sync with the group as person A, so that everyone is in sync. And that is the definition of the group mentality. So with this passage as, as reflection, what is Stephenson saying about different cultures? The Confucian culture versus the Western culture. I think most obviously the point they're making, or the point Stephenson's making, is the difference between the two. Meaning the Confucian values the collective 
much more than the Western neo-Victorian values the individual. Okay. This happens in the woods of Seattle. Like these are Westerners mm-hmm. that are part of this. So I mean, is it that they're like we look at Chinese culture and we look at our culture and we see inherent differences? Is it possible that in the way we view the individual is actually the same? We're just looking at it from like we're not looking at it the same, but it's the same ends. As in, like, although we think we're all individualistic, we're actually all communal, just like they're all communal. So there really are no differences. Well, one of the lessons that's coming out of the primer is is a lesson of communal existence, regardless that there is that there is a dependency on on others. But the Chinese girls react differently to that. They emphasize that differently. How is the ultimate? What is the what is the educational result of the Chinese girls? For example, for Nell, does it really matter that the Chinese girls are going to react differently? Everyone, you see, there's so many differences even within the Western culture. Nell, Fiona, Elizabeth, they react differently to the primer. But do the Chinese girls individually react differently to the primer? There is more of a collective uniformity in their reaction to the primer. So, what Stephenson seems to be saying is that education will have a different effect on different people, culturally defined. Go ahead. Although I definitely see your point, I'm not sure just based on the, the isolated way that we know these girls were raised that it's really a fair comparison. Because... They were raised in boats with the same, like, they had the same food, they had the same habitat, they had the same... The Chinese girls. Yes. Whereas Fiona, Elizabeth, and Nell, to begin with, came from a different background, and the primer built on their unique backgrounds, as opposed to the Chinese girls that had the exact same background. So... But isn't that part of the point? Right, but I... Uniformity and experience. Right, but, but that happens in an isolated system, and although, like, so China, for example, the Confucian idea, it spread all over the provinces of China into, um, like, into different regions. Like, there's different ethnic groups. Yes, there's a lot of Han Chinese, but there's a lot of ethnic groups. So you're not going to have all the uniformity that we're having in this book. Mm-hmm. So it is a, a decent kind of result, but it's not the complete result because we're not putting in the... In your defense, I should say that this aspect, this portrayal of Confucianism that Stephenson has made has been hotly debated, meaning some people say it's not accurate. Right. So, but nonetheless, he is saying, <laughs> with the debate as exists, he is saying that there is some cultural difference. So... Different people react differently. And one of the things that he's saying that he actually emphasized was a similar life experience among the Chinese girls in the book produced a similar type of response to the primer. Whereas Nell, Fiona, and Elizabeth had different life experiences. And their life experiences interacted with the way they received the education from the primer. What is Stephenson then saying about education? Well, for one, and this was a point you made on Tuesday, that 
the role of the teacher is extremely important in the education of the student. But a point I think that we haven't made yet is the role of the student on the teacher is almost as important as it is for the teacher on the student. So a teacher can be as excited and demanding or as knowledgeable as it can be, but if the student doesn't care what the teacher is saying, or if the student feels it has something better to do, it won't get out as much as, let's say, Nell did in comparison to Elizabeth. Actually, you're getting at the point that I was wondering about in a different way. Individual student motivation to engage it. What is Stephenson saying about using that idea of individual motivation about life experience and education. What is We've talked about the connection between culture and education, but we haven't covered life experience and education. Nell came from a different life experience than Fiona or Elizabeth or the Chinese girls. What is he saying about life experience and education? I think... Um it, it, using the book as this example, the um, life experiences that each girl had led to how she interpreted the primer and what the primer was giving to her. So based on um, what you get out of your education and your life experiences, you can choose what to take out of that and how you experience your education based on what you think is important in it. And so I think from that... Um, perspective, you can, in essence, personalize your education to how you want to. Mm -hmm. I think he's saying something, but what else is he saying? Say, how, how, who, who might want to go a little bit further with that line of thought, which is a good line of thought? Um, more than that, I mean, it's, it's, in essence, I'm shadowing exactly what Stefan said. But um, Nell obviously came from a very poor background. I mean, mm -hmm. dead father, a bunch of deadbeat boyfriends coming through. Um, and for once, she needed an escape from this kind of horrid world that she was living in. But more important than that, it, it was an example of you know, something better, something that she could, in essence, escape from the world to. Where if you look at... Um, Elizabeth, who had grown up with you know, all these great, nice things, it was just another book to her, or another you know, plaything, another toy. Where she she didn't need to put as much importance on it because she had other things that she could, in essence, get her her hands on. That's a really great point. She didn't value it. Mm -hmm. She didn't value it the way Nell said, the way Nell valued it. That's a really good point. She didn't value it, so she didn't engage it. But she also experiences it differently. Um, there's one passage where her parents take her primer away from her as punishment for being rude to a servant. That's a good point. And uh, she's still horribly upset about it. And they do this in front of uh, Lord Finkel McGrath to try to get a rise out of him, basically, um, because they know the parents have figured out what he's trying to do. And uh, it, they just don't understand quite the point of it because they think they're doing everything right, obviously, and they don't realize how important it is to Elizabeth to just have that sort of personalized companionship that her parents probably wouldn't offer her in hmm. the upper echelon. But could you see it as personalized companionship or simply being spoiled? It's kind of like 
if you have a bunch of really nice toys and you're playing with one toy and then it's taken away, you're still going to be annoyed that the toy that you were, the thing you were engaged in was taken away. You'll throw a tantrum. Well, you always want what you don't have. Right. I mean, and I think the, I think the important thing to know is, like, because, um, because Nell appreciates the primer, she gets a lot more from it. So, because she, because she cares, because she wants something from it, she actually gets something from it. Because Elizabeth doesn't really care, insofar as, I mean, she cares if it's, if she doesn't have it, because, you know, then she just doesn't have something. There's the one less thing that she has, and with someone that focuses so much on just having everything, when something's taken away, that's a problem. But she doesn't really care so much about what it can do for her, and therefore she doesn't get anything out of it. I disagree with you. Uh, page 293. Um, is 293? It's 292 and 293. Uh, okay. Do you have a passage, passage that you want to read to us? Um, well, it's just the passage I was talking about when the parents take away the primer. Oh, I see. Um, yeah. So I'll start at the bottom of 292. All right. Um, and this is uh, Colin Finkel-McGraw, the son, uh, talking to Lord Finkel-McGraw. All right. Sorry, Father, the younger Finkel McGraw said in a voice slathered with not very convincing synthetic good humor. Nap time, obviously. He nodded to the other, Mrs. Hackworth. Then his eyes returned to his father's face and followed the equity lord's gaze downward to the book. She was rude to the servants, Father, and so we have confiscated the book for the rest of the afternoon. It's the only punishment that seems to sink in. We employ it with some frequency. Then perhaps it is not sinking in as well as you suppose, Lord Finkel McGraw said, looking sad and sounding bemused. Colin Finkel McGraw chose to interpret this remark as a witticism targeted primarily at Elizabeth, but then parents of small children must perforce have an entirely different sense of irony than unimpaired humankind. We can't let her spend her life between the covers of your magical book, Father. It is like a little interactive empire with Elizabeth the Empress issuing all sorts of perfectly blood-curdling decrees to her obedient subjects. It's important to bring her back to reality from time to time so that she can get some perspective. Perspective. Very well. I shall look forward to seeing you and Elizabeth with her new perspective at dinner. Hmm. Again? Yeah. Go ahead. the point of reading that uh, was just um, that to show that the primer is important to her, not just as a possession, as you guys seem to think, but because uh, of the way she experiences it, she is allowed a certain amount of control, which she obviously does not have in you know her real world. She's completely controlled by her parents and the demands of society on her as uh, an upper-class individual. Hmm. And so it's in this primer that she has complete control. And uh, so her parents are trying to offer her perspective of real life, and uh, it seems at the end of the novel that they've overdone it, and she's just turned into another uh, upper-class woman. I've got to say, this says more to me about the parents than it does about Elizabeth, because Elizabeth doesn't say a word. Elizabeth doesn't, you know... All we get about Elizabeth is her parents' opinion of her. We don't actually get anything from her or some or an omniscient narrator. It's just what her parents think of her, which is not always the most accurate view of a person. You know, one of the differences 
between Elizabeth and Nell could be seen not just in the way they interact with the primer, but in the way they interact with life and the primer. Meaning the primer gives them instructions on how to interact with life, gives them suggestions, and Nell battles it out. She confronts life, she engages life, she tests out, she does things. Elizabeth, on the other hand, while upset when the primer is not with her, doesn't become engaged in life with the direction of the primer. Meaning the primer isn't isn't directing her life confrontations the way it is with Nell. This gets back to what I was trying to raise before, that Stephenson seems to be saying something about education, that it can't be from a book only. Remember when we started the class, before I turned the recorder on, we were saying about, we were talking about uh, education, and I said, you know, someone was saying, is it good to have arguments? And I said, there's only arguments. Otherwise, we could just hand out some fact sheets, and you could memorize the fact sheets, and that would be the end. But that's not education. It wouldn't work. You can't have education without the arguments. The arguments are the good thing. The engagement, the battle, the struggle, in taking the educational experience and then applying it in the world not in the sense of saying, I learned how to do X, Y, and Z, thus I did X, Y, and Z, and it went well. Send me the kudos. That's not what it's about. It's a struggle. It's the battle in life to live, to survive. Life, if anything, is is not easy. There's always a struggle. There's always a battle. And that's one of the things that you see about Nell. She rises to such great heights because she struggles so fiercely. And the primer acts as her guide, not to make her life easy, but to guide her in her struggles, to encourage her in her struggles. And one of the things you want to ask about Elizabeth is, did she have that same motivation to engage in the struggles? So one of the things you want to ask is, what is the educational experience from Stephenson's point of view? Is it one of learning things, from a book, or is it one of engaging in life, profoundly engaging in life, battling with life? Go ahead, Brian. Oh, I'm actually stressing. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> now let's get back to the Confucian girls. What's the difference between their experience and Nell's experience? With Elizabeth, it just bounced eventually. She wanted the book, but her experience of taking the book, getting the information from the book, and battling with life, it just bounced. It didn't work. It didn't have the same effect, at least, that it did with Nell. What about the Chinese girls? What is Stephenson saying about that? Why use the Chinese girls in the book? Why are they there? What are they supposed to be revealing about the educational experience? Because they are hindered with their experiences they cannot go as far as the girls who had those experiences. On an individual level, such as with Nell. But is the word hindered appropriate? Hindered has a negative connotation. Is Stephenson actually saying the Chinese girls had a negative experience, were less better off, were inferior? It's a question. I'm not answering it. 
Well, they certainly weren't inferior in their own society. What about the culture that they came from? Is Stephenson making an argument about cultures? I mean, superiority, inferiority with respect to cultures. Let me rephrase it. From the, Vict the Neo-Victorian perspective, not Stephenson perspective, from the Neo-Victorian perspective that Stephenson portrays, is there a difference, a value difference in cultures? Yes. What would that difference be? <laughs> the most obvious example is Nell obviously growing up to be a leader of her own file. She accomplishes something great. It's, you know, from ruins to, you know, being the top of this, this, uh, this file. So if you're looking at it from the neo-Victorian perspective, she did, like, the impossible. She did the ideal. She was the shining example of that culture. Good. What if Nell was one of the Chinese girls? She would have been shunned. She wasn't working with the whole. That's the point. That's the point. The point is not that the Chinese girls had an inferior culture, although perhaps from the neo-Victorian perspective that Stephenson portrays, it was viewed in, as an inferior way. The point is that from the different contexts of cultures, education is received differently. It is perceived differently. If Nell had reacted the way she did, but she was a Chinese girl, she would have been shunned. She would have been out of the group, meaning there is a group understanding that is a valid and uh, is a valid understanding of how to proceed with an education, and it's simply different from the Western view of how to proceed with an education. And within the Western view of how to proceed with an education, you get variety. You get Nell, Elizabeth, and Fiona, all acting in different ways, getting different results. But that is not the Confucian way, where you want to raise everybody up simultaneously. You don't want to have and Elizabeth, that goes by the wayside and dismisses the education. Do you get the idea? You want to raise everybody up at the same time. This is not saying one is better than the other, but it is clearly saying it is a different perspective. And given a similar type of educational background, the primer, you can get different results. And, and, and so what Stephens is saying is he's portraying four different results with the same book. The same primer. I gotta say, this sounds like the no child left behind policy. You gotta raise everybody up the same, even if they're not capable. Actually, that's a good point. Let's let's let me read uh, an editorial that came on today's New York Times. Me too. <laughs> and let's see if we can relate this to our own struggles with education. This is in today's New York Times, an editorial, Thursday, April 9, 2009, and let's let's read this. Let me read it quickly because we're running out of time. So let me just go through it. It's called. Hold the line on school reform. The $100 billion in federal stimulus money that Congress has set aside for education could get the nation's flagging school reform effort and its schools back on the right track. For that to happen, Education Secretary Arnie Duncan will need to tighten the preliminary eligibility guidelines he issued last week. The purpose of the $49 billion school stabilization fund is to protect schools from damaging cuts and layoffs while preserving the momentum toward reform. 
Mr. Duncan made a wise move by requiring states to finally publish data on their teacher evaluation systems and to show how student achievement is weighted in those evaluations. Now, when I read this, I want you to substitute the word primer for teacher. If properly spelled out and enforced, this provision would allow parents to see that most teacher evaluation systems are fraudulent and that an overwhelming majority of teachers are rated as excellent even in schools where the children learn nothing and fall far, be- far below state and national standards. The guidelines also contain far too many loopholes unless they are closed. Mr. Duncan could be squandering the rare opportunity the stimulus has given him to demand fundamental changes. Under the guidelines, states could get two-thirds of the money in the first round, in some cases as much as 90%, merely by making assurances that they will change destructive policies like shunting the least qualified teachers into schools, serving only the poorest and most ill-prepared children. Only in the second round of financing will the states be required to provide detailed analyses of what they do and how they operate. Federal officials say this was necessary to get the money out in a hurry, but it costs Washington the leverage it needs to speed reforms. Consider the way the states have have gamed the crucial provision of the No Child Left Behind Act that requires them to place a highly qualified teacher in every classroom. The states have simply reclassified inadequate teachers as well qualified without demanding that they pass competency exams in the fields they teach. Some members of Congress are also upset about language, guidance language, that has been widely read to mean that the states can actually shift money from education to other areas. The final version of the guidelines should make crystal clear how the states can and cannot spend this money. Mr. Mr. Duncan should also make it unequivocally clear that states who flout the law will forfeit stimulus money and become ineligible for any share of the nearly $5 billion competitive grant fund that Congress has placed under his control. Many states and school systems will want to claim federal money while preserving the disastrous status quo. Mr. Duncan will need to resist those pressures while pushing the country toward educational reform it desperately needs. Okay, how would you... This is some of our debates that we're having with education in our country at the current time. How would you connect that in the two minutes that are remaining with stuff we had in the book? Well, the most obvious is the... uh the separation of the people who are actually going into the educational system, whether they're coming from an area with basically well-to-do students or uh, not so well-to-do students. And the point it was making there was a lot of students who are going into the educational system are getting teachers who, who kind of, with their knowledge, reflect the socioeconomical status of the students themselves. So a student in a, a poor region is going to the school where this teacher there isn't teaching them anything. So they are failing to receive the opportunities that maybe a a more wealthy student is getting. And so they're afraid to be sending out the stimulus money to a teacher who, in essence, is just going to take the money and not use those, those resources to improve the knowledge of the students that they're teaching. Actually, you're raising an interesting point. I'm not even sure you realized but when you talk about the socioeconomic status of the teachers and the students being similar, 
then you're really raising the issue of whether there could also be some class or culture groupings between the teachers and the students and that the New York Times may be arguing that this class or culture connection should be broken. Now, one of the things we're running out of time that you might want to think about is that in the book, it's left ambiguous whether the primer that the Chinese girls is exactly the same as the primer that Nell, Elizabeth, and Fiona have. It might have been modified to match the culture, meaning the teacher might have been modified to match the culture, to produce an outcome that is compatible with the culture. Now, in our discussions we were having so far, we might be saying, well, is that what we want? Do we want an outcome where the culture is amplified? Or do we want a neo-Victorian culture thrown into the Confucian culture educational system? Do you want Nell's primer to be the one that the Chinese girls get if the Chinese girls' primer is different and more and modified to adapt to their culture? It reflects the idea of what kind of teacher do you want to put into the classroom? What are you expecting from the results? How are you going to be evaluating those results? It's a very interesting question of how do you mix people up? Do you want to force it. This ultimately goes back to questions such as busing. Do you want to force the disruption of the cultures in order to get an educational outcome? Do you want to force people from one group in one school to mix with people in another group? In another group? Do you want to force the Nels to interact with the Chinese girls in the same educational setting? That presumes that you have an idea, a goal, about where you want to take things. I don't think Stephenson answers the question, but he raises it profoundly well. So what we're left with Stephenson's book is not an answer to our educational problems, but the ultimate thing that we need to be left with. We need to be left with the questions, because ultimately we need to keep battling this out, because we don't have the answers yet. There are always good answers, though. That's the problem. I mean, think about the article saying... You mean the editorial? Think about, yeah, the editorial. Uh, he's saying that it needs to say that there need to be good teachers in every classroom. Well, if there were enough good teachers to put good teachers in every classroom, why aren't there currently good teachers in every classroom? So if he's saying that, you know, you need to put good teachers in classrooms... Um, where the students are of a lower socioeconomic class, then are you going to put bad teachers in the classrooms where people are of a higher socioeconomic class? Is that a valid thing to do? Is that any better than the other way around? Actually, I think it goes even further than that. It even goes, the editorial goes to the point of, uh, uh, actually, it it doesn't go as far as I would like, which is, to, which is to say that we don't even know to, how to distinguish between good and bad teachers. We don't even know what a good teacher or a bad teacher is. They're making assumptions in the editorial that there are a bunch of bad teachers and there are a bunch of good teachers. The reality is our ability as a collective society to evaluate our teachers 
is as bankrupt as our educational system in general. It's, it's very primitive. We haven't gone there yet. Anyway, these are questions that are raised in Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. In I mean, I'm not, not Snow Crash, in the Diamond Age. <laughs> in the Diamond Age, where we deal with uh, technology <coughs> rather than... Uh, the only one last thing I'll, I'll mention is that we didn't cover is that Neil Stephenson does make a point here of the failure of artificial intelligence to be able to automatically... Um, both solve educational problems, meaning that, and, and, and you can interpret that, one way of interpreting that is, is that there's no cookie cutter, cookie cutter one response to solving educational problems. Oh, wow. uh, that there's got to be some essence of a poem, <laughs> some essence of randomness, some essence of true genius in solving educational issues because there are going to be variations in how different students respond to things such as how Nell, Fiona, and Elizabeth respond to things. Okay, we're moving on to the next book. What is the next book? Ubik. Ubik by Philip uh, K. Dick. Philip K. Dick. On Tuesday. So make have, sure you get into that one. Do we have papers? Or?